around the globe in sold-out arenas and humble churches from out on the streets to your screen and now the time and what must be done part seven on this edition of Farrakhan Speaks Greetings to you. I am Minister Louis Farrakhan, National Representative of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, that great preacher of freedom, justice, and equality to the Aboriginal people of the earth, the black man and woman of America, and the dark people of the world, he is also a warner to the government and people of the United States of America and the nations of the earth. Elijah Muhammad, the eternal leader of the nation of Islam. I am so thankful to Almighty God Allah for the day that I met the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. As a young man, I always desired to see black people free. I cried myself to sleep many nights, especially after coming from the church and my Sunday school class, where I would ask my Sunday school teacher, if God gave Moses to the children of Israel, to deliver them from the hard bondage of Pharaoh. And if God always stood on the side of the enslaved and the oppressed, why hasn't God sent someone to us? My pastors and my Sunday school teachers had no answer for me. I was upset because I was a Christian and I loved Jesus Christ. But when I was a young man, white Christians were doing horrible things to black Christians and no intercession was taken on our behalf. So I started to look for somebody who would address the concerns of our people. When I was 11 years of age, uh, I was sent by my mother to New York to spend part of the summer with my uncle. And my uncle uh, had on his wall a picture of a black man in my house in Boston. We had pictures on our mantelpiece, one of whom was Queen Elizabeth and King George, and the other was a white representation of Jesus. But in my uncle's home, a black man was on the wall. 
that was really strange to me because all the homes that I had visited as a young man, all the black homes had a picture of Jesus, a white person. I remember once a Filipino man came to our door. He was selling Bibles. And uh, as he was opening the Bibles, showing my mother all of these white prophets and angels, he got to the Last Supper and my mother asked him, you mean to tell me there's no black people at all in this book? She ran him out of the house. And that was, for me, a sign that my mother, after I talked to my uncle, who told me my dad was a follower of Marcus Garvey, and my mother was on the fringe of the Garvey movement, she was very black conscious. And I thank God for that because she instilled in me love for our people. I always felt the pain of those that I would read about in the Crisis magazine or in the Afro-American or the Pittsburgh Courier when we would read of the lynchings and the burnings and the castrations and the terrible torture of black people when white people felt that we had done something improper. And so my heart ached to see our people free. And so I asked my uncle, who is that man on the wall. He said, he's a man that came to unite black people. That fascinated me. I was a little shorty at that time, so I asked my uncle to get a chair so I could stand on that chair and drink in the features of this black man who had come to unite black people. And as I was looking in his face, studying his features, I asked my uncle, where is he that I might go and be with him? And my uncle said, he's passed away. And the tears fell from my eyes because I had come that close to what my heart was yearning for and he was gone. My search always was for a man that would stand up for us. When I was 19 years of age, a musician, an entertainer, young boy going to school. I was in college at the time and had come home for the summer vacation. And one of my friends told me, 
that God had chosen a messenger for us. As I walked the street, tears fell from my eyes and I asked God, I said, God, why didn't you choose me? You know I love my people. And as fast as I made that question to God, the answer came when the brother had told me that God appeared in 1930 and I was not even born. So I decided I must go and meet this man and offer him my life. My friends had visited the mosque and heard the teachings of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, but they were not adequate to defend it because I had questions to ask that they couldn't answer. So at 19, I did not uh, meet Elijah Muhammad. I married at 20 years of age and was in college and then when I was 22 years of age, I was playing in a nightclub in Chicago called the Blue Angel nightclub that was on 801 North Rush Street. A great Greek wrestler by the name of Gene Fadouli was the owner of that nightclub. And there I was the featured performer. And as I was in a cab driving and coming down a street, I happened to look and see my old friend. My wife Khadija was in the cab with me. We stopped the cab, paid the cab driver, jumped out of the cab and hailed my friend that grew up together with me. And naturally, since he's in Chicago, I'm in Chicago, and I'm the headliner at the Blue Angel nightclub, I said to my friend, man, why don't you come on and, and catch my show? He wasn't moved a bit. And he said, your uncle is right around the corner. And the Honorable Elijah Muhammad had a little grocery store on Wentworth in Chicago. This is 1955. Mayor Daley had just been elected to his first term. And I went around the corner and saw my uncle and saw some of my friends from Boston who had become Muslims. So they asked me, would I like to come and hear the Honorable Elijah Muhammad? I said, of course. And so I was staying at the Wilmington Arms 
on 49th and Drexel and my friends came and picked me up and brought me to Muhammad's temple number two at 5335 South Greenwood Avenue in Chicago, Illinois. There was a tall, beautiful man opening up for Elijah Muhammad who had not yet come. And that man was the great dean of ministers, Brother Minister Lucius B.R., who this coming May, God willing, will be a hundred years of age. And after a few minutes, I heard somebody from the back of the auditorium say, Tanch Hut, the messenger of Allah. And I heard fast footsteps coming down the aisle and almost with a bound, Elijah Muhammad jumped up on the rostrum. He had me sitting where usually first timers don't sit. First timers always get the best seats in the house, front row, second row, third row, but he had me sitting in the balcony. And I looked across and I saw a brother that was a great musician in Boston. He was a Muslim. And there I was waving at him and he acted like he didn't even see me. Then Elijah Muhammad began to speak. And as he spoke, you know, being a student of English and always getting pretty good grades in English, he was splitting some verbs. Verb and subject agreement were not there. And in my mind, I said, mm, this man can't speak. And he looked up at the balcony where I was and he said, brother, I did not have a chance to get that mighty fine education that you got. When I got to the school door, it was closing. He meant that he was a sharecropper. And when it was time to pick cotton or do the things that were needed, there was no school for black people. He looked at me and said, brother, don't you pay any attention to how I'm saying it. You pay attention to what I'm saying. And then you take it and put it in that fine language that you know. He laid eyes on me for the first time and gave me my assignment. He spoke for nearly three hours or more, and his subject was, a savior is born. And at the end of his lecture, he asked for acceptances. Now, my wife was in the audience, and in her lap was our first child, 
Betsy Jean Farrakhan. She was a year old, a year and a week old. And she got up and went to the back and was joining on. I was still sitting in my chair. I wasn't quite, you know, ready. And my uncle came with his beautiful West Indian accent and he said, get up. Your wife done gone already. Get up. Well, you know, I was always taught to be respectful. So I wouldn't not do what he asked me to do. So I went. And I got my form. And I never will forget. They told me that these people searched you when you come to the mosque. And I was smoking my little reefer at that time. And... I had put it in my hat band. <laughs> and so after I took my form and went outside to go back home and write a letter, my wife and I both wrote our letters together and we sent it off. And I reached in my hat band. I wanted to throw away the reefer, but uh, I smoked it. And I did inhale. But that was the last time that Louis Farrakhan had marijuana 57 years ago. I gave up smoking. I gave up eating the swine. My wife was my girlfriend. I didn't have any girlfriends to give up. So I was cleaning up my life to become a follower of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. I was living in New York at the time. So when I got back to New York, I went to the temple number seven and uh, heard Malcolm X. Well, that was it. I had never heard a black man speak like that. And I had not heard from my letter in February. And this was in the summer. So I took my form out again and wrote my letter and it was accepted around the first week of October of that year. Being a musician and wanting to go back to Boston and deliver that message, I never knew that I had the gift of speech. And on a Wednesday evening, Brother Malcolm asked for the new converts to come and have a word to say. And when he called Louis X up, he said, I'd like you to speak on what Islam has done for you. Well, Islam had done a lot for me. 
So I just began to speak about this great teaching of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad and the great word that I heard from Brother Malcolm. And the mosque or temple erupted with applause. And the next thing I knew, Brother Malcolm put me in the ministry class. And my journey in the ministry began. I was not in the mosque 30 days. And a decree had come down from the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. I was working in Greenwich Village in New York in a place called the Village Barn. So I wasn't at the lecture that day, but as soon as I got a break, I came up to the little Muslim restaurant, the Temple Number no. 7 Luncheonette, to have a bowl of that wonderful bean soup. And as I was sitting there indulging in that beautiful bean soup with whole wheat bread, a brother came over to me and said, man, man, you missed it today. Malcolm read a letter from the Honorable Elijah Muhammad and in that letter, he said, all that are in show business, all that are in music, they would have to get out of music or get out of the temple. I don't remember whether I finished my bowl of soup. I got up and walked out of the restaurant to think. I think I may have walked 30 paces and I said, I can live without music, but I cannot live without the truth. And Brother Captain Yusuf Shah ran up to me wondering whether I had been ill-affected by that uh, command from Elijah Muhammad. And I told him I had made up my mind. Now why are you saying this Farrakhan? Well I wanted to give you some background on the time and what must be done. You know uh, in that letter Elijah Muhammad gave me 30 days to get out of show business and the last of the 30 days I had an engagement at the Neverly Country Club in upstate New York. And I said, well, I'm gonna get it all out of my system. I went up in that country club. I sang ballads. I sang calypsos. I danced. I told jokes, I played jazz violin, I played classical violin, I was finished. And after I got it all out, I went down in my dressing room and a man came in my dressing room. I think 
I remember his name as Purcell. He said, you are extremely talented. Do you have a manager? I said, no, sir. He said, I manage Pearl Bailey and Billy Daniels. And in case you don't know these two, Pearl Bailey was the greatest of her day and Billy Daniels the same. He said, if you will let me manage your career, I will start you off $500 a week and you will be playing in all the supper clubs that take Billy Daniels and Pearl Bailey. He said, well, Farrakhan, come on now. I thought you were teaching Islam. I am. I'm going to show you how in just a minute. That man offered me more money three or four times what I was making. At that time, $150 a week was big money in 54 and 55. But to offer me $500 playing in supper clubs across the country, that was a great offer. I didn't tell him I wasn't going to take it. I just said, uh, yes. He said, well, when you come in the city, if you meet me tomorrow, I'll have our lawyer there and we'll sign a contract. I smiled and took the address of where we would meet. And I went back to my little apartment in Jamaica, Queens, Long Island. And that night, I lay down in my bed and Allah gave me a vision of two doors. One of them had a sign over it saying, success. And I could look in that door and I saw a mound of diamonds and gold. And right next to it was another door that had a black veil coming from the top of the door to the bottom and over that door was Islam. And I was told to choose. And I chose the door of Islam, not knowing where that door would lead me. But if I stayed in show business, I was guaranteed to have a mound of gold and diamonds. But I chose the unknown. But what I did know was what I heard from Elijah Muhammad and Malcolm X of the truth was what I was looking for all my life. Mr. Purcell never saw me. I chose to give up the world to learn a truth that would free the minds of black people. It's written in the scriptures of the Bible, Jesus talking, 
if any man would be my disciple he must first deny himself pick up his cross and follow me I did the first thing I denied myself but I did not know the cross that I as a Muslim would bear at that time when Elijah Muhammad and the nation of Islam had not come to national and international public attention. I soon went to Boston and became a captain of the FOI and my minister at that time allowed me to teach when he wasn't there and every time I taught everyone that the believers brought would accept the teachings the little mosque filled so fast till we had to put the FOI on the outside Savior's Day came around again and I went to Chicago as a captain and the Honorable Elijah Muhammad had his Savior's Day at the Baptist Church on Indiana Avenue I think it's fellowship and he came out because this day the captains were speaking and I got up to speak and Elijah Muhammad was sitting behind me and later they showed me a picture of him sitting behind me with a big smile on his face and he invited me to come to the house for dinner and I was excited and his home was at 4847 South Woodlawn Avenue and when I got there his son Emmanuel Muhammad welcomed me and said your minister captain has arrived and when I went in and had dinner with this man it was now the father of my life spiritually I couldn't take my eyes off of him if you think that love at first sight is not real it is because with him I met the man that my soul had longed for all the days of my life and at the end of that dinner something I never saw him do again he got up from his table and he started at his left and he shook hands with everyone at that table I was at the near the end on his right side and when he came and shook my hand he pulled me close to him and whispered in my ear you remind me 
of David. I didn't know what he meant. But he knew that that young man, that musician that gave up all that he had was going to be the one that when he had left us would sit in his seat under his guidance and continue his work. David, as you know, in the scripture was a man after the heart of God. He had a heart like unto God's. He loved the things that God loved. He disliked the things that God disliked. He was courageous. He was a warrior. He was a ruddy complexioned young man. And when the prophet Samuel was told to go to the house of Jesse, And when David brings one of his sons to you, the Spirit of God will alight on you and you will know that that is the one and you will anoint him for he will be a king over Israel. Well, the man had seven sons and he walked them all in front of the prophet Samuel and the spirit did not descend on the prophet so he asked Jesse do you have another son and David said oh I mean uh, Jesse said yes 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 I have a son he's he's out in the field tending the sheep Samuel said, bring him. And when David walked in that room, the Spirit of God descended on Samuel, and Samuel knew that this one would be the anointed one to stand for the children of Israel. Well, I'm saying these things to say this to you. The time and what must be done is a powerful message. You can't deliver this message afraid. You can't deliver this message afraid of the consequences of such a message. Elijah Muhammad my teacher and my spiritual father. He never shrunk from delivering that message that Master Farad gave him no matter who disagreed with that message. In the end of his time among us, during the theology of time, he said, quote, I am the Jesus of the Bible and the Muhammad of the Holy Quran. Well, I don't preach a dead Elijah. I preach a living 
Elijah. I did not know that all the years that I was privileged to be at his table, he was planting seeds in my head, in my heart, even though I didn't know what those words meant. At the proper time, those words would come to fruition. If you want to know how Elijah Muhammad tried his student, go get the book Closing the Gap with Jabril Muhammad questioning Louis Farrakhan. And I only gave the trials that he put me through for 20 years. Not the trials that I have been under since I have been on this post, my father absent from me. Well, that message that Elijah Muhammad gave me, and for 10 years, I was his national representative, not spokesman, representative. A representative is different from a spokesman. A spokesman could speak the word, but not necessarily represent in ways of character, in morals, in courage, in fearlessness the man that he's the representative of. He put me on the radio for six years broadcasting in his name. And he told me, brother, God has gone in front of you and made friends for you all the way around the earth. I didn't know what he meant. But in my recent trip through the Caribbean, everywhere I went, I met prime ministers, I met finance ministers, I met ministers that were over defense, and all of them knew Farrakhan. Most of them were educated in America, and they grew up on Farrakhan representing the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. I'm not talking about one prime minister. I'm talking about practically everyone that I had the privilege of meeting, government people, bankers, heads of universities, grew up under Louis Farrakhan. In fact, one university president had held a luncheon for me when I took sick and came back from the hospital, I, I was in his home. He said, Brother Farrakhan, you may not remember me, but I was in your first study group at the Institute of Positive Education uh, with Haki Madhubuti. He said, when you made your first big speech in rebuilding the nation, I came to New York to hear that speech. 
He's a great lawyer now. He's a great president of a university now. And we remade our acquaintance in my last trip. Now, why did I spend such time? I was put in the valley of decision with that letter that Elijah Muhammad sent to me. In that valley of decision is where we are if we know the time and what must be done. So in the remaining minutes of this broadcast, I want to talk to black people in particular about this time. Elijah Muhammad taught me the best English lesson that I could learn about verb and subject agreement. He said, brother, we are in the present. Our actions must not belong to the past. We are free, so we should act like free men. Get out of a slave mentality, looking for others to do for us what we could unite and do for ourselves. The time is the end of our servitude to white America. Please understand that you are no longer to be their servitude slave. We must come out of their names. Johnson, Jones, Smith, O'Reilly, Culpepper, Woodchecker, Woodpecker, Mr. Green, Mr. Black, Mr. White, Mr. Brown. These are their names. They are creatures of a creature. You are creatures of the creator. So you should wear a name of God himself for you are a direct descendant of God, the aboriginal people of the earth. You don't look like a free man. All the great works that you do, you do it in their names. You've been baptized in their way of civilization. No wonder Master Farad said that we were savages. And a savage is a person that has lost the knowledge of self and is living a beast life. When you get to know the time then you must make a decision. I want to make a free step. If you don't, surely the Quran says man is in loss by the time. Well, I talked about loss a few uh, broadcasts ago of white America and black America, but I want to specifically talk to black people today about how you are losing. You know you're a loser. 
even though you have a black president you are not satisfied because he's not there to fulfill a black agenda in the first term or now that he's reelected in a second term that is not what the CEO of a corporate giant has to do he has to work for the stockholders the question is are you a real citizen of America or are we lawful captives wearing their names and they made us citizens by the 14th amendment and took it away in the 13th amendment what do you mean by that Farrakhan we were allowed to be a citizen but it was said that if the slave return to any illegal behavior he could lose that status as a free man and as a citizen wow look at how many black people are in prison right now as felons and even though our population is growing and our brown brothers population is growing and the demographers are saying that by the year uh, 2046 America will be a brown nation every man with a vote well do you think that the racist element in white America wants to see that reality when every vote will count and their population is diminishing while ours is increasing that means with one vote you could be governor with one vote in the hands of black and brown you could be senators in one vote you could be ruling America well how does that sit with a racist mind it doesn't sit well so birth control must be practiced among the native people the Indians among the blacks among the Mexicans this birth control is a death plan for us what must be done we must separate from our open enemy and begin the thought in our mind we are free people let's take a free step and build a nation of our own this is what God promised God doesn't promise the children of Israel a land of their own and fail to get it for them he promises and he fulfills his promise so we are asking the government of the United States of America some of us are asking for reparations they don't even want to consider it well you will because the scriptures that I quoted to you shall the lawful captive be delivered shall the prey be taken from the mighty absolutely God is contending with you now for the complete liberation of his people now of course when Abraham Lincoln was in the Lincoln Douglas debate he sent for some Negroes who were educated to come to the White House and they didn't want to leave Massa 
they wanted to stay in America and believe me some of you are like that too but I will say this I want to have the chance unhindered to teach the time and what must be done to every black man, woman, and child in America. And after we teach that subject, then we should take a vote as to how many of us want to stay with our open enemy or how many of us want to be separated from them in a land of our own. The promise of God is a land flowing with milk and honey. Well, milk means you have animal husbandry. Honey means you have bees that are pollinating flowers. You have vegetation. You have land that is fertile, land that is productive. What must be done? Well, America, you don't have anything for us to do. And your plan for us is genocidal. You are hoping for a race war. You are hoping that the guns that you have amassed can be used to slaughter black people. Let me say in a heartbeat, we don't carry weapons because we want to show you and the world that we are a people of peace. So as Muslim followers of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, you can't find guns in our homes. We are civilized people. We settle our disagreements with truth. In fact, we are forbidden even to argue with one another. For the truth settles all arguments. So the winner in our homes when there's dispute, where's the truth? Where does it lie? And it takes a rational mind, not people guided by emotion, to find the truth and act on the principles of the truth. And since I have been on this post by the grace of God, we have never picked up arms to harm one another or to harm anyone else. And even though they say Farrakhan is an anti-Semite, yet you cannot find one Jewish person that anyone who follows me has ever harmed. Nor can you find us in a vengeful spirit against white people. Naturally, we will fight with those who fight with us, but we are commanded never to be the aggressor. What must be done? What is essential to life is that we must be properly educated now. Our colleges and universities must educate the black man and woman for self-independence. We need all branches of engineering. 
we need medicine we need law we need science we need biology we need chemistry we need all of the sciences that will help us to build an independent existence did you know that in cuba comandante fidel castro had offered us a thousand scholarships for black and brown and poor white to come to Cuba in their medical program. And in six years, we would come out doctors ready to pass any exam in America to be qualified to practice medicine. And the only thing he required was that we practice that medicine in the communities out of which we came. That's a great offer. Northwestern University had 30,000 applications to the medical school, but only 300 students could be chosen. I'm sorry, 3,000 students could be chosen. 27,000 students had to go somewhere else. Where did they go? Why is it that we don't have enough doctors? Don't be afraid to go to Cuba. Well, they're communists. In upcoming broadcasts, I'm going to talk to you about this blockade on Cuba what America must do to win back her favor with the nations of the earth. So I want you all to think about what must be done. Black people, we must pool our resources. February 24th at our annual Savior's Day convention, the subject is the economic blueprint of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad to fight against poverty and want. You need to know what we must do to prepare a future for ourselves, whether it's here or elsewhere. We have to get busy. Get up from a begging position. Well, you say, um, we, 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 we can't leave white America. I mean, that, that's not intelligent. Where would we go? Well, we'll talk about that in one of our next broadcasts. You say separation is not the answer. I say to the government and people of the United States, separation of us from you is the only answer and you will soon come to know it. Now, dear brothers and sisters, if you don't wish to do for yourself, if you don't wish to separate, here's the loss that will be inflicted upon us. They are intending that those guns that are in the homes of nearly 350 million guns among 315 million Americans. And every black person in America does not have a gun. They're intending that if something happens, God forbid,
and we are angered and upset and rise. They intend to mow us down. It's written in the scriptures in the book of Revelation that blood would be up to the horse's bridle. They're planning that it is your blood and my blood and our blood. But all of these militias, 1,200 well-armed, they hate their government. And the scripture says, God speaking, I'm going to give you your own blood to drink. And you will be drunk with your own blood as with sweet wine. So in upcoming broadcasts, not only black man must you and I get ready to do something for self. America, there are things that you have to do not only to avoid the cliff, because that's not the real cliff. There's another cliff that you are facing and that cliff is going to take you into World War III. But in upcoming broadcasts, we will talk to you about how to avoid it. Now, it's entirely up to you. I'm only here to give the message. And I am told by Allah, deliver the message. And if you do it, surely I will protect you from men. So those of you who have heard this personal broadcast with something for all of us to do, if you have questions, you can ask Farrakhan, tell your friends and neighbors about this broadcast, and I'll see you, inshallah, God willing, next week, same time, same station. May God bless you with the light of understanding as I greet you in peace. Assalamu alaikum.